0: there's hey, lots of dead things in here the world, yeah, is, world is decomposing that's just how it smells
1: <laughs> welcome to science welcome to science
0: welcome to science you go do scientific things we're doing microbial science in your office exactly yeah a little legionnaire's <laughs> disease you know
1: what could possibly go wrong it's not going to impact your behavioral studies at all no it's fine. no oh my
0: god i can't oh my god it took us forever we, we have our lab uh, doing the fireside relaxation study, in first the building is old, so we couldn't control the heat for the longest time, right? So oh, we're no. trying to run these studies, and you know it's about fireside relaxation. We're trying to like keep the heat constant, but the building, the people in the building are in charge, not us. So that oh, was my gosh. But then we're right below the theater, theater and dance. Oh, okay. So when they'd be rehearsing, you know. Uh, oh my god. Yeah, so, um, do, you know, like things you don't think about when you are running science on a college campus. You know, you're like, oh my gosh. Aside from people, I, you know, I remember talking to Jennifer Raff last year. Uh, I think it was after she published Origin, and just asking about all of the protocols to do ancient DNA research and like these like yeah. hermetically sealed buildings, misting yourself with Clorox bleach. You know, all this stuff, and then the rest of us like. I just did a talk at Purdue where I was showing them pictures of like, I'm like, here's how you do a uh, fly by the seat of your pants type of research. And it was when we started Fireside and it was in an old dark room with a sink next to him. And there was like a, a Olivia Newton-John sweatband holding the gear, the thing on his head to measure his, you know, his skin Oh, my gosh. oh And then my gosh. in the next picture, I was like, and this is what happens when you finally, when you get that that first paper out and you get funding and it's like a picture of like all the equipment they brought in to do this little 15 minute documentary to promote the research oh my gosh the the contrast was amazing
1: that's incredible Yeah, yeah yeah i feel like anthropologists are very very good at doing quick and dirty studies and we just need to be better at getting the big money than we can do like really precise nice high equipment uh-huh. studies on top of that
0: <laughs> well the problem is there's never anything quick about them they're just dirty and they stay that way they they end up being long and dirty so i i picked up that expression quick and dirty from um bob trivers i don't know what the hell he was talking about i was only at ruckers <laughs> for a month but he would talk about quick and dirty studies and so I had it in my head that there's this thing called Quick and Dirty Studies, and that's how I started that, and I'm still doing it 15 years later. So I don't know what that that's about. Speaking <laughs> of Bob Trivers, he is cited right out of the gate in one of the papers that we we had the opportunity to review today. So yes. shall we?
1: We have Dr. Sean Prahl, who is an assistant professor and evolutionary anthropologist at the University of Missouri with interest in human health and reproduction, reproductive decision-making, and evolutionary ecology. He examines costs and trade-offs associated with investments in reproduction, and he does this with a combination of quantitative and qualitative methods, including anthropometrics, demography, endocrinology, ectigraphy, validated health surveys, dyadic peer ratings, alongside semi-structured demographic interviews, and measures of social norms. His work is informed by a mix of evolutionary and behavioral ecology, cultural evolutionary theory, and evolutionary psychology, especially related to reproductive concerns. He is the co-director of the Kuneni Rural Health and Demography Project. I hope I said that correctly. Uh, a contributor to the Endow Project and a collaborator on the Gore Longitudinal Health and Demography Project.
0: We we interviewed Brooke Selza last year and she is the co-author with Sean on a lot of this work um but what I've always liked about his and their work in general and you may not know about this about me but I came out of a sort of combined evolutionary psychology and uh biocultural medical anthropology and there's often a pissing match going on between the two of them that drives me crazy as someone who straddles both fields and um currently for instance you know i know that uh augustine i i mentioned this on our last podcast uh wrote a a scientific american piece on the non-binaryness of sex after we last spoke i thought hey uh, i just mentioned how he was taking a beating on twitter i should just go and retweet that and like carry a little bit of the 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 weight for him yeah it's his it's his article but you know i read it and it's It's no different than the kind of stuff Joan Roughgarden wrote about in Evolution's Rainbow 10 or 15 years ago.
1: Absolutely. In fact, I I remember reading that Augustine's article and being like, this is a very benign, like non-controversial article. And I do not understand the pushback. I know. And and as soon as I
0: tweeted it, I had an evolutionary psychologist telling me like, oh, you should be careful. Don't wade into this. It's like poorly argued article and I'm like dude it's an essay it's it's just putting some examples out there like you guys are getting in this this ridiculous argument over again evolutionary psychology you're getting arguing with trolls etc and so on I guess the x I have to grind is it's not about the disciplines it's about the science you do good science yes. you do poor science and what I love about their work this this long prelude is to say that I love how well they combine field-based research with. Uh, real living people they problematize absolutely. the hell out of evolutionary models and they continue to do the work on trying to answer some of those hard questions that people are getting their panties in a bunch about so I really yes. you know we, we got one on food security and we've got one on mating right here in, in one yeah. person mm-hmm. so shall we bring them on
1: absolutely let's do it it's
0: always easier when they're not here to sort of gush about them right
1: <laughs> and they come
0: in in the middle of those those that inter- is awkward. Do, 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 do. We should have a TikTok, uh, like a ding, dong, ding, dong, ding, <laughs> dong, ding.
1: While we're ding, waiting.
0: <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Hey, Sean, hey, how are you? Hey. Oh, Welcome just,
1: to the pod.
2: Oh, I'm glad to be
0: here. I don't know if you could hear that. I was just trying to come up with a little theme intro when we let you in from the waiting room, a little uh, Jeopardy or or oh. Wheel of Fortune or whatever the hell that... Ding, 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 mm. ding, ding, ding. I think that's...
2: <laughs> Yeah, maybe maybe keep workshopping
0: that. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I'm going to let Malika take the helm right here.
1: Well, welcome, Sean. We're so happy to have you here. For this podcast, Sausage of Science, something that we are always really interested in is, of course, the science that is happening. But more importantly, who is the person behind the science? How is the sausage made? How do you get to do the work that you're doing? And how did you get to the point where you're at? So our question, our first question for you is what was your journey? How did you get to your current work? did you get interested in anthropology and working on evolutionary perspectives and human health and reproduction?
2: Yeah. So uh, I grew up in Idaho and my dad took me to some fossil digs in Montana a couple of times, a couple of summers actually. And so we did a a summer just camping and digging fish fossils. And we did a summer uh, volunteering for a dig with the Museum of the Rockies, digging uh, hadrosaurs. Um, And so that was sort of my first kind of like outdoor sort of real field experience uh, working with science. And I think that inspired me. I start so I wanted to do something with archaeology and went to Boise State University, which was in the same town I grew up in. And I went to a field school in Belize. Uh, it's kind of a bioarchaeology focused field school uh, with Gabriel Roble, who's now at uh, Michigan State, I believe. And so it was kind of a cool uh, Mayan uh, working class grave site. So lots of archaeology and lots of osteology stuff. And that got me more interested in bioanth. And I did some uh, bone histology stuff with one of my advisors at Boise State. And then it was actually a class with Mark Plew, a uh, hunter-gatherer class where we were reading about kung birth spacing stuff. Uh, you know, the idea that like this sort of uh, the, the four-year birth interval, inner birth interval maximizes fertility and the role of, of breastfeeding on gonadal function. And I thought that was really cool that I, that collision of physiology and ecology to produce population dynamics. And I, I was really inspired by that sort of combination of ecology and physiology. And so I started I started looking for somebody who was working in that area and found Michael Muhlenbein at Indiana. And so I went to grad school and started working with him. And a couple of research pivots later, here I am.
0: Uh, you and Brooke have been working together for a long time, yeah? Yeah, since 2016. Was that as a that did that begin afterward or as a postdoc or? Yeah, that
2: was part. That was part of my postdoc. I had a postdoc at UCLA to work on on her Himba uh, paternity and uh, reproductive decision project. So that's where we started working together. And yeah,
0: cool, cool. Okay, so yeah, I was thinking. I was thinking she was your PhD advisor, and then I'm like, no, I know better than that. I'm using <laughs> the bacteria killing activity oh, yeah. assay that you and Michael and I so I should know all of this stuff. Let me let me screw my head back on. So. Malika and I were talking right at the beginning. One of the things that I really like about the work that you do, and probably has something to do with where you are, you're, you're sort of maybe encouraged to do this, but you combine human behavioral ecology and biocultural medical anthropology, as we call it here. And I make a big deal about that every time because I get tired of listening to people argue about uh, disciplines, right, rather than good science. So I appreciate that you're, you're just kind of going forward, you're doing good science, you're in the field, you're look, looking at food insecurity, you're looking at mating preferences, you're testing evolutionary models, and you're problematizing evolutionary tropes. So I want to jump in and start with um, the piece that came from a special issue, mm-hmm. Extreme Climatic Events and Human Biology and Health from American Journal of Human Biology. And the reason we're starting this, just being super transparent to our listeners and you, is because we want to amplify articles in our affiliated journal and then go back and test and see if it works. So we want to see if people uh. go, and, go and actually look at this. So uh, the article's entitled uh, The Dietary Impacts of Drought in a Traditional Pastoralist Economy. I know you said this isn't like the most popping of the, the articles that you have, but I really think it's fascinating because you're looking at basically a hunter-gatherer population who are going through drought and they're they're not being allowed to participate in the market economy is that that right
2: so they're they're agro pastoralists and yeah they 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 had a, a really long dr- it was like a 10-year drought um and they, so they were really suffering because of that and they've been um what michael bollig who's, who's worked there for a long time calls colonial encapsulation which basically means they're sort of cordoned off in the larger market economy they're not really allowed to sell livestock to, at, the, at larger markets they can sell you know Sheeps and cows and goats at one of the small markets nearby, but they they don't really have access to the larger livestock market. Um, and so they're sort of cordoned off uh, into this sort of area of the Kunene. And there's there were some other colonial and historical forces that sort of pushed them into this one particular spot. So they're in sort of a bad situation when it comes to really severe drought because they don't have a lot of access to the market economy. Um, they don't really have access to a lot of cash. And so it makes it difficult to sort of adapt to some of these changing things. And so, um, you know, this paper, we were really interested in looking at how drought was impacting food insecurity and dietary change, uh, thinking that as the drought lingered, and as their cows were dying off, they would be sort of pivoting towards market-based foods and sort of lower quality foods and thinking about, you know, how, how uh, uh, pastoralism and, and severe drought is going to lead to sort of norm change and more market integration in this community. So that was sort of the the, the basis for that paper.
1: For the listeners here, the community that you're working with is the Himba, correct?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I am really curious because when you're an anthropology student, an undergraduate, I feel like the Himba is one of the classic anthropology affiliated communities that people have worked with for really long periods of time. And so oh, is it? I
2: didn't know that. <laughs>
1: I I feel like when you watch those like uh, you know the anthropology four field documentaries on like not geo and stuff, it's like, uh-huh. oh the Himba are one of like the main populations that come up. And I think uh-huh. it's because of their very unique and strong community behaviors. I guess we can talk more about the paper, but I'm also curious about how you got in working with them and how it's been working with that community. And what is the relationship between researchers and the community there, particularly as they're in this, as you mentioned, colonial encapsulation?
2: Yeah. So like I said, I started working there as part of my postdoc. Um, I'd done a lot of sort of international travel and volunteer work in, in Africa before, but that was my first actual you know, sort of anthropology field work. and so it was a it was a bit of a culture shock. You know, working out there, uh, there's no power or running water. It's kind of like camping in the Southwest, but with a lot more goats. And so, communities are really great. You know, they're really warm and welcoming. The, the chief has been great. Brooke has built up relationships with them for a, you know more than a decade now. And so, you know, they they're, they seem to mostly enjoy talking with us. They get they will get tired of of long-winded interviews and questions, but you know they're they're uh, they it's it's a really great place to work cuz people are just really friendly and, and welcoming and inviting and you know uh, it, it's really rewarding to be able to come back and see people year after year and so building these sort of community relationships is important for research but also it's kind of personally rewarding to do that so but in terms of like what they think about the research they're often a little bit i don't know they're sort of disinterested like sometimes we'll we'll, we'll work on a project for a long time then we'll come back to talk about the results and they're just like yeah we know that already like we we've been telling you this you don't need to tell us the thing we've been telling you, like we get it, you know. So uh, I guess then that's good in a way that you know we're we're meeting their expectations of what their culture is like and how it behaves and and the sort of pieces of it functioning together but the chief one time i remember telling us like you know you keep asking us about reproduction and, and marriage and stuff you need to ask us some other questions about food and about water and things and, and health and so that's you know that's what we're doing now <laughs> so we're sort of pivoting to, to try and you know do some more applied stuff and sort of think about you know what the community wants to learn not just what we want to learn
0: yeah no i love that and i think we're all having similar experiences in our field sites and i, I think it's Part of it's stopping and listening and uh, and then also our our populations that we work with and it's not like they're ours, but it's a manner of speaking. so the peoples sure. among whom we're allowed to work are increasingly aware of us and increasingly aware of the the tensions that that we face and and know that we we are supposed to be giving back so uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that that's really I'm having similar experiences but what I wanted to to hone in on is this drought like the chart on this drought it's it's an historically bad drought it's like a like a 20 or 40 year or something low something like that
2: yeah it was it's it's bad it was bad at at its worst
0: (laughs) at its worst in 2020 which 2020 has a pin in it for the entire planet so Right, right and then you you guys looked at primarily five things and among mostly women right so i wonder if you could tell us what the five things were that you looked at why and then sort of is there a compounding effect of food insecurity and COVID or, or did those did those not have anything to do with each other?
2: Yeah. So we were interested in looking at, you know, uh, food insecurity metrics and uh, using the sort of standardized cross-cultural uh, household hunger scale to think about how food insecurity is changing. We also wanted to do dietary recalls to think about, you know, what types of food they're actually shifting towards and why. And so we, we explored some of that. And it seemed like, like I said before, they were they're they're leaning towards, at least in the drought more sugar, more store-bought foods, less sour milk, which is a really important food staple for them. That is their sort of like primary food. That's the food that they really like. It's uh, it's milk that's been soured in a the sort of gourd thing. Um, it, it smells like soured milk. <laughs> I've not Can been you- able to bring myself to drink it because I, I get my nose to it. It smells so bad that I kind of <laughs> you know <laughs> react.
0: Can you tell uh, us real quick about what they they eat? What well, you said twice a day, and it's these basically these cakes with the sour milk. Is that right?
2: Yeah. Their, their, their diet is mostly maize meal, maize meal porridge and sour milk. And that's, you know like 90 percent of their diet so that's you know it's morning and evening the, the the two meals that they eat and it's maize milk porridge and sour milk that's pretty much it so and meat occasionally when they slaughter something but of course they're pastoralists so they like to hold on to their wealth not you know slaughter too frequently uh, but that's one of the things we were seeing during the drought is actually we don't actually see differences in meat consumption probably because they are increasingly slaughtering or they're losing animals and so they're eating meat and so it's not like they're, they're, uh, you know, they're sort of taking advantage of, of the losses of those livestock. But over you know, a decade-long drought, that's going to become really problematic for their household-level wealth.
0: And you, uh, you focused on women. Did you see a convergence or any issues overlapping with the pandemic and food insecurity among this population? I have it in my head because we talked to Brooke last year that colonial capsule somehow protected them from COVID. But correct me if I'm wrong.
2: Yeah, COVID's a little bit of a, a a mystery. So we 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 did some pilot work on this last year and it doesn't sound like people know anybody that died or even got sick from COVID for the most part. I suspect it got up there, but uh we don't have any real records of it. But that being said, uh about a third of all male heads of household died between 2019 and the, after the pandemic. Um a lot of them were pretty old and it doesn't seem to be COVID at least from what we what we hear. I know that maybe government was testing, uh, uh, doing a lot of testing of, of people that have died to make sure it wasn't COVID, uh, but I, we, we really don't know exactly what you know caused those deaths. But again, like I said, a lot of them are really old. The chief died, and he was like ninety nine. So, so that 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 was a big. Shift pre versus post COVID, the social dynamics are seem totally different. I expect that um, we're going to see some increase, you know, shift towards market integration and and norm change. We've do, we've got some previous work that suggested that you know younger and more educated Himba are less likely to support traditional norms, including like inheritance and and reproductive concurrency. And I suspect that combined drought, uh, loss of senior uh, men who are sort of reinforcing these traditional norms are going to be increasingly shifting them towards. Uh, acculturation and market integration so
1: this paper talks about the drought specifically and i'm sure we could talk about it all session but i know that you've worked on some really amazing other things both with this community and outside of the community a couple of the papers that you had sent us including the work on mating market dynamics and partner preference and women's status i'm just curious like what has been your favorite thing to work on with this group and i guess maybe beyond this group
2: yeah what's my favorite thing to work on Uh, so we did this trait preference task That was sort of the basis of the the mating market paper and the women's status paper, where we show people photos of other people in their community and have them basically rate them on a bunch of things on partner desirability on things like generosity and respectfulness and intelligence. And then we take all this data and, and do cool stuff with it. So that's been really fun to work on. And they actually really like doing that stuff. It's not like we're sitting down for a very tedious reproductive interview where we're trying to figure out like when some baby was born 20 years ago and, uh, you know, order their kids and figure out which kid they've forgotten about which is very tedious and boring but this stuff is really fun so you just get you know we get the ipad out and they start looking at photos and rating people and they love it and They'll like come back to camp be like can we do this some more we want to keep doing this you know um so i really enjoy at least in terms of data collection i really enjoy doing that stuff now when you get at home and you have like ten thousand different trait lines of data then you have to sort of figure out how to model it which is a lot tougher <laughs> but um i do really like doing that stuff so
1: i i feel like it's almost like Tinder for the Himba.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, I try not to uh, use that because I don't want to get sued. But uh, yes, that, informally, we've called it that before. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so um, I'm really curious about the methodology used in that. So the, you have the iPads and they're pictures of people they know and they mm-hmm. get to the pass on kin and people they don't know. So one, one, how did you set it up? In other words, getting the photos, setting everything up. And two, was there any IRB? conundrums with having people rate people they know in terms of attractiveness i've done similar studies at college campuses and they're they're really kind of prickly about stuff like that
2: yeah we didn't really run into any issues like that i mean these are all you know people within their community that they know and we you know go around and ask them to take their photo and say we're going to put it in our database and use it for x and every once in a while someone will be like yeah i don't really want to do that okay that's fine but the the sort of mechanics of it we we Run all this stuff in a, a FileMaker database. The rating thing is actually FileMakers aren't really designed to do this, but it, it basically works as a as a modified search function where I pull up somebody's profile in our database where we've got all their kids and all their marriages and all their anthropometrics, and then I push a button that has it search based on their criteria, people that they can rate, and then it pulls up you know a set of photos and they just start going. So it's it's pretty it's pretty fun. I I really like this sort of dietic level data collection. I think there's a lot of uh, power and doing this sort of method versus you know having people self-rate on traits or use some sort of Likert scale or something, which I don't think works very well in communities like this.
0: It, it reminds me of when I when I used to teach anthropology of sex, I'd show the uh, science of sex appeal, and it shows the the Doug Kenrick experiment where they have numbers on their head; they don't know what their own <laughs> number is, but they're gravitating <laughs> toward a high number, and they end up matching up pretty much with someone within one number of who they are, and it sounds like you found sort of similar results?
2: Yeah, it seems like, you know, that sort of shakes out into a typical biological market theory type predictions where desirable people tend to pair up with similarly desired, desirable people, both marital and non-marital partnerships. And so, you know, we, we show in that mating market paper that people generally prefer more attractive people than themselves or more desirable people, I should say, um, which isn't particularly surprising, right? But when, you know, you have to sort of, yeah, interact on the mating market and compete, compete with others for these high quality partners you like pairs with like and so um you know this is uh th- this paper uh meshes really nicely with even um, uh, um internet dating website type papers and and, and that sort of thing and papers in the US and stuff all it all it all meshes up pretty well so yeah exactly so
1: i i have to ask i know that i i had emailed to warn you about this ahead of time
2: <laughs> but
1: what are your thoughts then on, uh, I guess, the translation for to this of this theoretical work to things like reality TV, like Love Is Blind or The Bachelor or Bachelorette?
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh. So caveat is I've not seen any of those shows, but I think it 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 does line up with this sort of uh, pop culture idea of 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 leagues. You know, people that are in your league versus out of your league. Um, we typically think about it in terms of just straight like attractiveness, physical attractiveness, but I think it's at least within other communities, it's a lot more complicated than that because desirability is not just about attractiveness. It's about personality traits and generosity and you know, adhering to social norms and the the type of 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 matriline or patriline you come from. Um so uh it's it's not just about, you know. How somebody looks but it's about a lot more personality and kinship related traits but uh i think that this work really does sort of line up with this sort of like that, that somebody has like a league and they're sort of in this league versus out of this league and it makes them sort of you know th- this paper generated some very silly um write-ups and and kind of pop science blogs and stuff that i Kind of cringe to read, but
0: <laughs> I imagine, yeah. Um, and you could wade into that uh, deeply if you really were a, a Twitter warrior. There, there, yeah, no,
2: I'm not. Not going to do that. Absolutely you not. You
0: leave that to Augustine. We were just talking about <laughs> that at the beginning. So, um, but one of the other outcomes you found that I think is really important to hone in on. Well, there's two. One, you you talk about it in contrast in the intro to doing these online dating paradigms. And you you sort of mentioned there why they're different. And I wonder if you could sort of f- flesh that out a little bit, like why you chose to do this in a, a natural population. And two, I wonder if you could speak to what you found about the success of those partnerships, the life satisfaction.
2: Yeah. So I think the online studies are really useful because you can get tons and tons of data. You know, they can get tens of thousands of individual matches or or uh, interactions online. But Uh, that's, you know, how people interact on a dating website is, you know, very different than actual behavior. You know, the communication structure is different. The pool of partners is exponentially larger than people in your actual sphere, right? So it promotes a sort of a shopping mentality, I think, where you can always look for somebody that might be slightly better. Uh, It lowers the stakes of any particular failed interaction. So if you, you know, mess up one Message and or or bid for a partner, then it doesn't really matter because there's a whole vast sea of other potential partners out there. So I think that, and there, there are people, other people have written about this, but I think that the online dating market kind of plays with our psychology in a way that really doesn't mesh well with how people actually choose partners in the real world or how we've actually chosen partners in the last you know thousand years or so. So in terms of what we found for partnership dynamics in this population, like I said, it, it seems like. Partner desirability correlates pretty well, so like pairs with like. We uh, tried to match that on to particular sort of dynamics of the relationship and found things like the the slight differences in, in frequency of things like people talking on the phone. All Himba have cell phones now, so they can easily talk on the phone. Uh, we also found that people who are in a relationship with somebody that's uh, of higher desirability than themselves suspects that that partner has a lot of additional other partners this is a place where concurrency is practiced and so everybody's got marital partners and non-marital partners and so uh, you know we we show that like if you if you are with a partner marital or non-marital who is more desirable than you you believe that that person has more partners than them and we also found things like uh, uh length of the relationship uh, seem to matter. So when you're better matched, uh, relationships tend to be longer. Um, sexual histories reflect this as well. Uh, the more matched you are, the more likely you are to have reported a, a past sexual history with that person. So it all matches up really nicely, again, with the sort of predictions from biological market theory. That's
0: very cool. One quick interjection question. Is it, are the HIMBA like the uh, Dutwancy that Marjorie Shostak wrote about in NISA so long ago? The serial monogamy or how, what, what is their sort of standard or culturally accepted practice of fidelity, monogamy, etc.?
2: Yeah. So they're, they're, they're polygynous for one. Um, and then, you know, Brooke has written a lot about the reproductive pattern of concurrency where basically everybody married or non-married has boyfriends and girlfriends on the side. And it's a socially acceptable practice. There's lots of sort of norms that protect women's ability to have boyfriends come and visit them Um, and there's you know there's norms that sort of protect the husbands as well so if a boyfriend comes to visit he's not supposed to be seen by the husband because you know that would be disrespectful and it's a really important part of uh, himba culture it uh, provides sort of a secondary source of support for these women, so they can sort of go to the boyfriends and ask for additional aid if they need to. And there's, you know, there's a whole other piece of this that you know uh, Brooke has really taken on, looking at things like paternity decisions and mating decisions, and you know how men invest in different types of kids, whether they're marital or non-marital, or different types of women that have boyfriends versus not. Um, but a lot of it seems to reflect this idea that you have to treat everyone equally. You have to treat your wives the same, whether or not they've got. Many additional boyfriends or not, Um, you know, you have to treat your kids the same, whether or not they're biologically yours or socially yours. Um, So it's a really interesting system to sort of think about the dynamics of these of these questions, um, which I think is what really inspired uh, Burke to start doing this work.
1: So you had mentioned earlier on that the community is interested in looking beyond reproduction and looking beyond uh, mate preference choices, though I feel like would also be very fun to look at, and are interested in things like water and food security. And you had sent us uh, one of your papers that is currently under review, Medical Mistrust, Discrimination in Healthcare Practices or Healthcare Experiences in Namibian Pastoralists. And I, I feel like this work feels really, really timely, particularly given this you know, transformative global health dumpster fire that was <laughs> <laughs> the COVID experience. And so, you know, I, I don't want to like give anything away. I know things are still under review. I don't want to like steal the thunder of the paper, but wanted to know if you would be interested in talking more about your thoughts on this and your ideas about things moving forward.
2: Yeah, I'm happy to give, all, give it all away or whatever, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm, we're sort of pivoting to do some work on healthcare and vaccination decisions to better understand how and why people make these decisions, individual and cultural level factors that come into play, you know, how do different cultural models of disease impact what they think about vaccines? And we're thinking about this not just in the context of COVID or adherence to childhood vaccines, but also thinking about the upcoming malaria vaccine that's under development. And so when that is, you know, hopefully eventually deployed, we can sort of better understand how that's going to be uh, interpreted and understood by these communities. And so the medical mistrust paper that you that you mentioned, this is some pilot data that we collected last year for a grant application. We're trying to understand the role of, of medical mistrust, the idea that they might distrust healthcare systems or healthcare personnel that are sort of represented this other dominant culture. And the me- medical mistrust is an interesting idea. You know, it sort of reflects the sort of inequalities in history of a population. Um, it's been associated with lots of negative health outcomes in the U.S. in particular, and in African-American populations, things like uh, underutilization of services, poor management of health conditions, et cetera. But there's not a lot of work done in Africa using this this frame, and and this is probably a pretty good place to actually use this frame, given the sort of you know histories of colonialism and exploitation. And so we wanted to understand, you know, what factors influence healthcare decisions in Himba. Is medical mistrust a sort of viable model to think about how they're uh, reflecting on healthcare, reflecting on doctors and nurses. And so we used a kind of a standard questionnaire that we modified slightly to sort of fit the cultural context. Um, and it found out that medical mistrust maps really nicely onto negative healthcare experiences, things like they went to the hospital or the clinic and they had to wait forever, or they were ignored or they were mistreated, but it maps really nicely onto perceptions of discrimination. Um, and a lot of participants reported that they, uh, really did feel discriminated at the hospital and the clinic. Uh, you know, Himba women in particular—they wear ochre, which is a mix of uh, milk fat and ground ochre. So their skin is kind of red, and it comes off. You know, when you it, when you touch them, it comes off on your on your fingers. Um, and so, you know, this is really—they don't. They traditionally also don't shower. They use traditional smoke baths, and so the doctors and nurses kind of you know really frown upon these traditional practices. And uh, both Brooke and I have taken. Uh, women to the hospital, you know, emergencies uh, for deliveries or something and seeing first person that sometimes they're treated really badly by the, hosp- the hospital staff. And uh, we 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 have people reporting, women reporting that sometimes if they need to go to the hospital, and they're going to be there a while. They'll actually, uh, they'll shower, they take off all the ochre, they'll find some Western clothes to put on, like a dress, and they'll cover their hair to basically sort of hide all the traditional himba uh, markers um, because they think that they're going to get treated better if they do. And so um, clearly, if you have this perception that you're discriminated against or that you're excluded, then um, that's probably going to play a role in why you seek health care, how you seek health care. So we're sort of trying to understand how that impacts uh, vaccines. And that, this is part of a larger project on cultural models of disease, market integration, socioeconomic status, social learning biases, all sorts of stuff, kind of thinking about vaccines more broadly. But um, that was the sort of thrust of this of this paper that's in review.
0: That is fascinating. I cannot tell you how profoundly different I thought about himba use of ochre, right? Because I talk about ochre all the time and in, in, you know when we talk about the evolution of symbolic communication and uh there's always a picture of a himba person with the ochre <laughs> on them for modern use and I think I under explain it. They are using it way more profoundly and I can easily imagine that. And the the thing that popped out in the article, you talked around it was a lot of them express recent decent experiences with medical services. So obviously they recognize the value of it, but then the resentment about not just the maltreatment, but incompetence, right? And that just speaks to the whole colonial encounter that everyone suffers through. And it's in biomedicine in general. I think we, we all balance, we need this, but we struggle with incompetence throughout these bureaucracies. Um, and I wanted to, to throw out there, I just saw on Instagram, Nate Dominey at Dartmouth just curated an exhibit at their museum at Dartmouth on ochre use. So mm. maybe there might be some some Himba stuff up there. Yeah.
2: We, we've asked them about ochre use and, you know, why do you do it? And I know there's papers out there about that. It's sort of like a natural uh, UV repellent or something or, you know, protects against UV radiation or something like that. Uh, we, we ask it they say it's for beauty. That's it. It is, you know, if you push on it, it's for beauty, it's what we do, it's our tradition. So it's really part of like, you know, their identity, I think. But yeah, it, it is it is really, really interesting and, and very unique to that particular area.
0: None of the sham menstruation or mosquito repellent or any other evolutionary models we try to project onto them.
2: No, I think it's, it's really just, just tradition, just cultural history. You know, it's, there's no evolution. I don't think there's any evolutionary reason why they do it. I even the UV radiation doesn't make sense because they're, they're, they're much darker than, you know, let's say the San who live in the same area they have, they have darker pigmentation. So I, I, I'd be surprised if there was any sort of functional reason for it.
0: All right. gotta go edit that out of that.
2: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
1: Also, you're an assistant professor, you're a junior faculty member, and that experience is, I think, very valuable to a lot of our listeners. We have a lot of junior folks who listen up and are kind of looking up into what, you know, what faculty realm is going to be like. And so when I was like creeping on you a bit for the podcast <laughs> and <laughs> you gotta figure out like, you know, what your it's background is. research. Was, uh, some, research. <laughs> it's research, it's what we do. <laughs> this is our job, right? So something I was really well, a, a couple things I was really impressed with with your body of work. For one, I have to tell you, your like data visualization graphics are awesome. They are really, really good. And I feel like it's very easy for graduate students, uh, postdocs, et cetera, to be, I'll just try and do the bare minimum for graphics because they're hard, but I feel like a little bit goes a long way. I was really impressed with that. And then the other part of it was like, I really liked your co-author network and just kind of how you demonstrated the number of people you worked with and how everyone is connected with each other. And I think that that seems to be very valuable and critical for being successful in this field and probably many others. So I just wanted to, you know, I feel like this is a little bit meta, you know, we're talking about (laughs) networks on networks and, you know, we study human networks also, Uh, but your thoughts on that, like how have you felt navigating as a junior faculty member and what are the things you think are valuable that are worth for, you know, as graduate students, postdocs, et cetera, are moving up, like what are things that they should focus on so they too can do well?
2: Yeah. So in terms of that network thing you talked about, uh, I think I stole that from Ellie Power, who posted it on Twitter years ago, and I thought that I thought it was so cool, and I was really interested in doing network analysis, which I don't really do. So I, that was like my first attempt at network analysis, was doing a network of my own network. And so that's why that's on there. It's it's just I think it looks cool. But in terms of, of data viz more generally. I, I really like it. I really hate when you pull up a paper and there's no figures in it. You know, it's a bunch of tables and text. It's like, I want to look at something, you know, maybe I'm just uh, ADD or something, but I need to see something plotted, you know, that stuff, I, it's hard, but uh, you know, you're really standing on the shoulders of hardworking R stats nerds out there in the world who are writing these cool packages and, you know, putting their work online on GitHub and all these community, communities, this whole R community who's writing tutorials and dealing with package updates and uh, all that stuff. Stuff that the, sort of that labor that they're not really probably getting too much credit for plays an outsized role. And I think in modern science, and particularly if you're into using R and R stats. So I'm really just finding cool packages on, online that people are posting on Twitter and, and trying to turn them into cool visualizations because I, I have to plan a plot stuff to understand it. So that's my sort of theory of, 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 of why I do that. Uh, in terms of like the you know, networking and academia, I think, I think I really underappreciated how important social networks were when I was in grad school academia is not a meritocracy, you know, better connected people from high status places with high status in group people do better on the, on the job market, do better in their careers. And so it's really important to quote unquote, you know, network. I think that, uh, so I definitely could have done that a lot better in grad school. I think some others like you, for example, I think you you seem like a great network. I remember talking to you at, uh, at one of the ABAs a long time ago and you were, you knew everybody you were jumping around and having fun I was like, Oh, that's how to do it. Yeah. So, but I think, you know, for younger folks definitely go to the conferences and talk to lots of people. Poster sessions are great for networking because you can one-on-one with, with everybody and like, you know, really discuss something or or just, just meet people, you know, don't feel like you have to try and impress anybody or be really smart. Just ask a couple of questions, you know, engage with their work, engage with them as a person. The other thing I was thinking about is, and I, I struggle with this as well. That you don't have to do everything for yourself when you're doing your research so i always want to like oh i want to write the model and i want to write the code and i want to collect i want to do everything and that's really not a very good strategy because um, there are people who are really good at certain things and if you you know collect a network of, of specialists you can really do a lot better science i think so you know reach out to somebody if you want to use their approach or their model or their or test some of their hypotheses uh, most people are really nice and really kind and generous and are willing to give you feedback or to collaborate with you on something. And so, and then you, you know, you have a new person in your network, right? If I reach out to somebody because I want to do some statistical model, I don't know how to do, I incorporate them in my network and suddenly, you know, we're working together and we're friends and, and, and whatever else, and you sort of build your network out from there. But networking is really just, you know, writing papers with with people you like and your friends and stuff like that. So it, it's easier for, you know, extroverts than, than for others. But uh, (laughs) yeah, I think it's, it's hugely important in this field.
0: No, that's a great point. And we talk about that a lot on this show, like the difference between ambiverts, introverts, extroverts, and and how we, we do these things. And I always, I always try to point out every single time I do a talk that I am not an extrovert. I just seem like one. I'm an ambivert. Mm. Like, give me a job. And I, I can do it, but don't give me a job. And I decompensate. I, I don't oh. I get, you know. I, I need a podcast to run or a burger to flip or something like that. But <laughs>
2: well, you're cosplaying an extrovert very well. Yeah, yeah, right.
0: Say. It's all good advice, and I want to reinforce it by saying we had Alicia DeLuise on earlier this semester, uh, geeking out on her her papers and. And then I showed up at the meetings and realized that she was the one shepherding 700 like undergrads through Josh Snodgrass's lab and had a really good <laughs> system for doing that with R. And we had a meeting and then I went onto her YouTube uh, R tutorial. And I got to say, I have finally I finally went over to the R side. And um,
2: oh, good, I'm, good.
0: I'm training. Uh, we sat down in the lab. Uh, a couple weeks ago and started training the entire all my lab to do sort of similar and and what i want to say is Thank you. I, I looking you up, I already see you have a GitHub. So I see you're doing a lot of the same stuff, making things publicly available. The fact is it's out there, right?
1: Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. Exists. It, it exists. It yeah. exists, which is more than most
2: people.
0: <laughs> it's, it's yeah, shared. I, I was forced to make a GitHub for this other
2: project. But mostly the stuff we mostly we share data on OSF. I find that easier. I find GitHub a little bit more confusing, but I'm I should I should switch to working more with GitHub. You're right.
0: But my point is thank you for the sharing. The networking does help float everyone up and people quietly are using all this stuff and all these tutorials and finding their way into the field, even if they don't necessarily know people to begin with. Like I think Mm -hmm. some folks are gifted gabbers. Some folks came from programs with lots of links that they could use to and others have to figure it out on their own so they do it on the internet nowadays it's awesome
2: yeah absolutely and there's tons of, of resources to learn you know r and stats and stuff online and i'm I'm always happy to meet a new r convert i was i did spss all through grad school before switching to r in my postdoc and you know I, it was a total sort of revolution for me in terms of how i think about data and stats and and all that stuff so i I highly recommend and it's free, right? And you can't, can't complain about that. So yeah, yeah. which
1: is awesome. I feel yeah. like it really brings together like both the very disparate things that I mentioned of data visualization and networks. Turns out if you have friends who know how to use R, you feel mm-hmm. like less of an idiot when you're trying to switch into R.
2: <laughs> yep. Yep. And I've, I've got lots of friends who I'm constantly exchanging code with and, you know, sharing stuff. And oh, I did this model this way and, you know, ch- take a look at this and, you know, they'll steal steal snippets from each other and stuff. And so it's a really easy way to sort of figure stuff out too.
0: Awesome. Well I wanna thank you for leading the way on the bacteria killing activity because that we didn't talk about that paper. <laughs> Bacterial
2: but, killing assay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I used the paper <laughs> that you and Danny I think Danny Longman wrote uh-huh, uh-huh. uh as like the guide, the path to understanding what the hell I was doing with that. So we'll come back to that some other day. Okay, um, okay. Thank you for being on the show. Wait, we, wait, wait. We, we, we have to ask the best question. Very, very oh, no. important okay. question. Oh no,
2: oh no. I thought we were gonna yes. skip this one. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we're we're lobbying to bring back the talent show uh, at, at the awards banquet at the Human Biology Association. So we are getting our roster together. We're finding out what everyone's talents are. So if you were selected to be uh, in the HBA talent show, what would your talent be?
2: I got to admit, when I, I got this question from Malika and uh, I, I put in my notes, I just wrote no underneath it. Because I'm I'm much too curmudgeonly to participate in a talent show, much less be in the same room as the talent show. So I will be at the bar down the street on my own, being an introvert, <laughs> doing my own thing, you know, looking up something on the internet or whatever. I, I have hobbies that are more solitary, like running and biking and stuff. Not really a good fit for a talent show, but I don't know what sort of like academic extrovert weirdos you hang out with, but we have uh, we have gardeners. Uh, count me out. Count
0: knitters uh people who parallel park well, <laughs> yes, well so we're taking one. where
2: talent is uh talent kind of is a very is... liberal in interpretation of the word talent huh? yeah
0: exactly it's a room full of, of mermaids and unicorns
1: was, wasn't there wasn't there one person whose whose talent was cheering on other people, people.
0: <laughs> one talent was traveling you guys will be uh yes. I'll, I'll travel i'll show you, how, you was... how to pack a suitcase i'll give I you a sense of what academics myself. are doing
2: with their spare time right they're not really uh doing these you know uh, you got, see, got, uh, talent talent show like hobbies i guess
0: uh uh-huh. this question has been far more <laughs> fruitful in terms of getting at the psyche of our our, our interviewees <laughs> than the what is your what do you do with your with your spare yeah. time so thank you, you know, John. I'd
2: rather, yeah i'd rather get a root canal than participate in the talent show personally <laughs> so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sorry sorry love it way to end <laughs> I'd rather I get i I'd that rather get sense. a root canal than hang out with you people. But then you know, on the podcast. No, I'm just kidding. It's been fun. It's all good humor. Thank you so much, Sean.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Was this was so great. And uh you can find is there a place where they can find you on the internet or online or do you want to be found? Uh, sounds like you might want to yeah, be at the bar.
2: I mean, I have a website. I, I I have a Twitter account, but you know, I'm not super active on either. So you okay. I can you can email me. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, we'll put your email in the show notes.
0: Yep. You can find the Human Biology Association also online on Twitter at HumBioAsos, and I am at Chris underscore L-Y.
1: And I am at SkyMall, that would be S-K-Y-Y underscore M-A-L.
0: And we have just a few more episodes with for you, and then we will be taking a summer break. So uh, enjoy this yes. episode, and uh, thank you again. Thanks. Thank we'll you. Up, we'll be up next week. Peace out.